Today I'll be speaking with Paul Bloom again. We spoke two podcasts back. He's a psychologist from Yale and a wonderful thinker. This time around we get into some controversial areas. We go to the dark side a little bit. We talk about torture, despite my better judgment. We talk about Cecil the Lion. talk about politics. You'll find at the end that I perform a kind of intervention on myself and Paul to some degree on the topic of eating meat. Many of you vegans and vegetarians have been after me for quite some time for a few remarks I made about having been a lapsed vegetarian. And um, now the, um, the chickens, as it were, have come home to roost. Uh, so you'll hear that I call for the best resources out there for how to be a vegetarian or a vegan healthily, and uh, that's a sincere request. So if you have good information to send me, please do so through the email contact form on my website, and please put vegetarianism or veganism in the subject line, and I will keep you apprised of my progress. And without further preamble, I give you Paul Bloom. I'm back with Paul Bloom, my friend, the Yale psychologist who was on the podcast last time. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, you are back largely because I wanted to talk to you again, but people loved our last podcast. So um, I would encourage people, if they haven't heard you the first time around, to go back and listen to what we said about empathy. But now I think it would be good for the two of us to strike out onto some novel territory here. And I had the idea that we could look at some uh, essentially moral case studies where we talk about stories in the news that are, are particularly salient in, in moral terms and just essentially free associate on them. That sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, the, the issues that we could talk about are interesting in and of themselves, but it could also serve as sort of test cases to explore certain views that you and I have, and maybe flesh out some agreements and some differences. Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, you and I, in preparation for this conversation, just batted a few topics around. I think uh, we both still dimly recall the Republican presidential debate, the first one with Donald Trump, which happened, I think, about 10 days ago. And um, one thing stood out for me there that I just think is it's amazing that no one picks up on this. I, I don't think I saw this talked about in any in any journalistic context, but it seemed that at least three of the candidates there declared their opposition to abortion not only in general and not only in the case of rape and incest, but even to save the life of the mother. I mean, I'd like to just spell out what that actually means because it's it's a really a mind-boggling position for anyone to have, especially someone who would seek to run this country. I would guess that would be Huckabee and Santorum. Who would be the third? Yeah, I think it was it was Walker, Cruz, and Rubio. And uh, Rubio, he, d he didn't spell it out, but he said that his support for abortion in the case of rape, incest, and for the life of the mother had been mischaracterized. It's a, kind of a hand-waving denial of his, of his liberal position there. You have to respect it as a morally consistent view. If you do believe it's murder then that follows. And you could you know, admire these people, if, if anything, for their, their moral consistency and their willingness to, to see the implications of their views. Yeah, no, I, it, it is, it's a courage of a certain kind, no doubt. Mm -hmm. So let's just look at the details here, because what this means is in a perfect world by their lights, even if a teenage girl were raped by her father, 
and became pregnant, and there was some reasonable concern that she would not survive the delivery of this child, they would be against abortion even if we could intervene immediately, even the moment after conception, and just remove a single-celled fertilized ovum, they would be against it. That is, in fact, the moral position. This idea that life starts at the moment of conception and is equivalently sacred at that point, that's what they're committed to. So, and, and presumably, any doctor who could, by magic or otherwise, extract a single cell from the uterus of a raped daughter who was likely to die if she carried this fetus to term, that they would want that doctor prosecuted as a murderer and presumably killed if they're for the death penalty, at the very least put in prison for the rest of his life. That is the totality of this moral position. It is just mind-bogglingly unethical, and yet no journalist ever presses these people on it. I think it's because the journalists don't take them particularly seriously. And, and I, I don't know whether they should be taken seriously. I think for at least some cases, like uh, Huckabee, for instance, this might express a sincere and considered viewpoint. But for a lot of these politicians, for one thing, they know that no such law would ever get passed. Um, they're not going to revamp uh, Roe v. Wade in this sort of dramatic way. I think what it is, is is a signal. Look how far I'm willing to go. Even if you don't think I'm right, you've got to admire me, they're saying, for my consistency and my moral strength. And, and I, I think the psychology of what's going on is very interesting, but I don't think that these are meant to be purely evaluated as moral positions. But they're only appropriate signals, which is to say effective ones, useful ones from a political point of view, if some significant percentage of the electorate actually holds these views. So these are, they're, at best, they're pandering to the convictions of a mob who actually would want the laws to change in this way. Yes. Uh, they're, they're, they're pandering to the most extreme uh, members of the Republican Party in the hopes that all the non-extreme members will at least respect or not be repelled by their extreme views. But how could they be confident of that given what this moral position entails? Again, we're talking about someone who's raped and who, who will die if she brings this baby to term. And we can prevent this catastrophe by removing a single cell or a collection of, of 50 cells, right? A microscopic organism without any nervous system, without any capacity to suffer. I mean, this is, this is in fact, what is being proposed. And uh, they are confident that this will not alienate better than 50% of the electorate. I just don't understand. Their confidence is derived from either some assumption that just no one is following the plot here and, and no one actually understands the position they're articulating, or they just think that most people, most of the time, are close enough to this position that it's a safe position to stake out. I think some combination of the two. I think, um, I mean, another issue would be Trump's immigration policies, which if you spell them out, they're off, they're sort of unimaginably cruel, you know, expelling children and their parents, uh, mm. including parents who are maybe legal immigrants or children who may be legal immigrants, um, in, in order to sort of establish some sort of anti-immigrant position. And I think like the abortion thing, if you spell it out to them what people, what the implications are, uh, they would find it repellent. But at the same time, 
I don't think people are responding or are meant to respond to the moral content of these views as opposed to their status as signals. I mean, re- remember the whole thing about Obama's birth certificate? Mm. I, I actually think that, that most people who claimed Obama was not an American citizen didn't really believe this. They were just saying, boo, Obama. They were saying, I don't like Obama. Here's a bad thing we could say about him. And I think that a lot of these moral statements are not meant to be thought of as factual moral claims. In some way, you're giving, in some way I think you're giving the Republican candidates too much credit. I think you're, you're sort of envisioning them as making these thoughtful ethical claims that are meant to be evaluated, as opposed to making dramatic flourishes for the audience. It almost doesn't matter which side of that you take, because the dramatic flourish is only effective, or at least not ruinous to your candidacy, if no one is objecting to what is suggested there. So it's a, like either you, either you have to be confident that that everyone is speaking and reasoning in bad faith, or enough of everyone for your doing so not to matter, or you have to think that millions of people actually agree with the letter of the position you're staking out. I haven't studied this, but I think the poll data suggests that it would have to be option one. I don't think this extreme pro-life view is held by a large proportion of Americans. I think most Americans fall sort of uneasily in the middle. And obviously, there's a political party difference. But I think the view you're sketching out with its implications, if you put that to people, uh, Republicans uh, as well as Democrats, they say, no, we don't want that. To sort of put this in a nice light, it's analogous to a politician who says that such and so is their top priority. And nothing is more important than saving American lives. Nothing is more important than this. Nothing more important than that. Which is taken literally as absurd. Nobody would, would assume that a single policy should override all other policies. But these are statements meant more as sort of speech acts that, that you know, highlight one's commitment and one's loyalty to the party. So in some way, he may be the only American who's taking, <laughs> yeah, taking these people to the work seriously. The one person watching this debate who is actually doing the math here, You're morally speaking. You're taking that saying, but that's morally absurd. So actually, there's something that in Trump's candidacy and, and his whole style of self-presentation, which I think supports your interpretation here, which is that the fact that he is as popular as he is, given that it's, it is almost impossible to take what he says seriously, there's a kind of histrionic bad faith to his, yeah. his style of self-presentation where even he doesn't believe what he's saying, nor does he believe that you believe it, and yet he's winning points for saying it as loudly as he can say it. People are just simply relieved to have someone speak in a uncensored way, even if it's actually a kind of bad faith performance where he's actually not voicing an honest position. I think that's right. I think people have pointed out that many of Trump's views lean very left. Uh, he's notably sympathetic to single-payer health care systems, which, you know, if, if somebody named someone like Bush or Rubio suggested they'd be laughed off the stage. But there's a huge tolerance for Trump's views because they're not taken seriously as, as views. I mean, I find, I find Trump fascinating. I find the ascendance of Trump just extraordinarily interesting. And I mean, one thing I'll ask your opinion on this, because I'm genuinely dumbfounded, is what explains the variation in how people respond to Trump? So for me and for most of my friends, which, are, which tend to lean very liberal, uh, we find Trump repellent. 
We find his endless boasting, his bragging about his money, his derision towards his enemies, his personal insults, just this awful, awful person. But so many other people seem to be attracted to him. They seem to think this is terrific. This is this great guy who we admire, who, you know, who deserves our respect. And we, you know, give him help, they say, they say about Trump. What do you think underlies that difference? Well, yeah, it's hard to even locate myself on that continuum, too, because I, there is... So, there, so, yeah, there, so where do you uh, lie in that continuum? Like, how do you personally respond to Trump's style? You know, I think I'm in two places on it, because it was in some ways a relief to have him on that stage because he was just he's so ungovernable. He destabilizes what is otherwise a, a machine perfectly designed to produce non-information and to give you absolutely no insight into how people would actually govern. And mm-hmm. because he's destabilizing the Republican Party, it's I think it's, if nothing else, interesting. Yeah. And I think, as it sounds like you do, that he's probably not committed, not truly committed to anything all that scary. So he's actually less scary than some of the other Republican candidates in terms of how they would likely govern. Also, I I don't think he stands a chance of becoming president. So I'm not not worried about him in any deep sense. But he is a a genuinely comic figure. And it's hard to imagine people who truly like him not seeing that. The fact that anyone's taking him as a, a truly successful and brilliant billionaire who has gravitas because of how much he's accomplished, that's very hard for me to, to believe. But I, I'm sure most of the people who support him do more or less take him in that sense. I mean, for the last many years, I've been writing on a defense of human rationality arguing, contrary to people like uh, my friend John Haidt, that we're actually far more rational and reflective than people give us credit for. Even people, even in our political domain, uh, we, we are capable of rational thought and rational liberation. I have to say, you know, this the Republican uh, debate and Trump in general is proving to be an embarrassment for my theory. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like getting refuted more and more each day by yeah. watching the reactions to Trump. And and I feel, you know, and it's kind of sad that, that at some level, I get, well, let me back up. Uh, you know, Chomsky uh, has, has, has famously argued that we really, that the rational thing to do is not to care about these, uh, the debates between the political parties, because to all intents and purposes, they're the same. They're all the parties of big business and imperialism and so on. And I don't believe that, but maybe uh, people aren't taking this seriously. They're enjoying a spectacle of Trump. They're rooting him on. And maybe if you, if, you, if you press them on it, they would say, we don't really care that much about difference to Republicans and Democrats. We're just there for the show. I have your same angle on reason and the same gripe with height. But I must say my own experiences of late, not just as a spectator on our political process, but just my collisions with my own critics have caused me to worry that as I recently just said on Twitter, that I, I fear that reason is actually an acquired taste, and not that many people seem to acquire it. That there's a style of argumentation that I'm running into again and again and again, and it's 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 on Twitter, but it's at much greater length. It was it was with Chomsky when I attempted to have a conversation with him, where there is such a an unwillingness to engage with the details of an argument that you don't want to be true you know, your opponent's position, that you're not even willing to take the time to understand it. 
the style is you just want to demonize the person for merely broaching a certain topic. And yet this strategy of vilifying someone, distorting their position, yelling louder and louder and louder until you silence them, that is viewed by many people uh, who, who support your side of the, of the argument as a truly clever thing to do. That it's really, it's, it's, it's effective, it's morally appropriate. Just call the per other person an asshole or a monster loudly enough until the conversation is over and then you've you've won, and that's uh, just more and more. I'm finding that 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 is where people who imagine that they are highly scrupulous and honest and and intellectually serious agents of progress. That's how they're behaving. It's it's very depressing. I mean, it just it now makes me want to pick my battles far more conservatively because it's just it's such a waste of time and energy to even attempt some of these conversations. I could understand that. I've kind of watched as a horrified spectator to some of the things you're talking about, and. Uh... You have my sympathies. There, there's, in some way, I, I won't defend that style, but I'll make an observation about it, which is that um, if, if what you're going after is trying to find out the truth, then you don't want that style at all. You want to listen with an open mind. You want to let both sides air their disputes. You want to explore counterfactuals and so on and so forth. On the other hand, if there's something, if there's some policy you want and you have a goal in mind and you've already settled the issue to your own mind, in some cases, that may be what that, that may be the most rational strategy to demonize your opponent, um, it, it, regardless of its sort of moral qualities. The example I'm thinking about is debates over torture, yeah, where yeah. where when people uh, raise, you know, I'm thinking uh, Alan Dershowitz, for instance, has made some provocative claims about the occasional necessity of torture in, under certain circumstances. I followed him down that rabbit hole and. You know, I get I get his hate mail still, and I get my own hate mail, and it's it's a totally thankless job, as I've said in various places. I actually regret having even talked about the or, and written about the topic because it's just I mean I think it's I think it's hugely interesting ethically, I mean, philosophically, it's something you absolutely want to be able to talk about, and it has great consequences in, as a matter of public policy, but you are so perfectly demonized even for talking about it that it's just not worth it. And that's a, that's a feature, not a bug. I mean, that's, that's the point. The right. point is that if, if you have a certain view that says that torture is repellent, one should never do it, it's monstrous, um, and that's an absolute principle one holds, then you may choose to demonize people who argue in favor of torture and, uh, rather than engage with them because you want them. You want to make their views and to make those, those people repellent. You want to uh, disincentivize holding that view. But the, but the problem is, as I hope to show in my arguments on this topic, is that the consequences of that position are even more repellent if you actually follow it to the letter. It, it is somewhat analogous to this abortion example right. I just raised. It's just like, if you actually look at the details of what it would mean to never, under any circumstance, have recourse to making another person so uncomfortable that they talk to you, Right, what it called torture by another name. Right, um, you can easily concoct not not just thought experiments, but very realistic situations. In fact, situations we know have occurred where the person before you you absolutely know is guilty and has information that would save lives, and yet you're just you know delivering them coffee and cigarettes mm -hmm. and and giving them uh, cable television to watch, 
if you look at the details, you can easily find a situation where you would be a moral monster to not have recourse to that. And yet you can't even push the conversation far enough as to reveal that. No, it, it, it's true, and I've seen I've seen the style of uh, demonization applied to people on the right, people on the left. It's something that that individuals with tremendous confidence, both in the correctness of their views and you know the the monstrosity of other views, will kind of cheerfully engage in and believe they're on the side of the angels. And it's not such an alien feeling. I mean, if some if, if I had to, if I bumped into a Holocaust denier. I wouldn't give them the respect of having a lengthy discourse with them. Yeah, but, I would. I would ridicule them. But that's because you know that that's such a heavy lift. I mean, there's just exactly. there's, there's so much evidence against their view that even their their very interest in pursuing that line of inquiry says something negative about them. Intellectually speaking, leaving leaving the ethics aside, it's like belonging to the flat Earth society. It's like exactly. the, the fact that your your attention is captured by that project says something derogatory about you. I think some people would say the same thing about people arguing for genetic genetic basis of ethnic differences, uh, people arguing about torture, people arguing about um, unfettered capitalism. And, right. you know, and, and so, so my claim, I, I'm not defending this, but I'm sort of making a descriptive claim that, that those who do the demonization see themselves as in the same position that you and I would see ourselves when confronted with a Holocaust denier. Right. You're confronted right. with somebody who is motive, must be motivated by sheer animus and sheer irrationality. They're not worth the time of day. And actually, they don't belong in the sort of free marketplace of ideas. Just to show you how uh, browbeaten I've been by this, I, I feel the need to insert just a defensive caveat here, because having merely raised this issue, you know, ec echoes of my former self on the topic of torture, I'm going to get slammed. So I just have to point out that my investigation of the ethics of torture drew a parallel between torture and collateral damage. And the core of my point is that collateral damage is worse than torture across the board. It is worse to blow people up, innocent or guilty, than it is to waterboard them. It's certainly worse to blow them up along with their children than it is to waterboard them. And if we ever found ourselves in a situation where torturing one person seemed likely to minimize the prospect of collateral damage, torture would have to be preferable. Waterboarding would have to be preferable. Waterboarding someone who is Osama bin Laden or he merely looks like Osama bin Laden, it would have to be preferable to dropping a 500-pound bomb on him and his family mm -hmm. in moral terms. And yet we accept collateral damage more or less without argument. There's no one whose reputation has been destroyed by his willingness or her willingness to accept collateral damage in time of war, and yet merely raising the prospect of torturing a certain class of known terrorist just w would destroy you. And, and as Dershowitz and I have experienced to some degree on the margins. Uh, so anyway, I have to point that out. I, I think torture should be illegal. But not everything that should remain illegal is in every instance unethical. Trespassing should be illegal and theft should be illegal. But there are situations where you would have to be a monster not to trespass or not to steal if the stakes were high enough. And, the, and finally, in my defense, and this is now torture to realize how <laughs> boring this is, uh, the position I ha have on torture is precisely the position you get if you read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. In their article on torture, they have an example of a carjacking where 
A, a guy stole a woman's car at a um, gas station, and she had her infant you know, baby seat in the back seat. And he abandoned the car on an incredibly hot day. I think it was in New Zealand or Australia. And the police promptly caught the guy and wanted to know where the car was. And he just denied against all evidence that he had stolen the car. And they knew that a baby was dying in the back of it somewhere on, a, you know, on the side of the road. And they you know, smacked him around a little bit. And then he immediately told them where the car was. And they saved the baby in the nick of time. That's the example that the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy gives in support of, at the very least, a nuanced ethical consideration of the validity of torture. For, for me, I think that should stop you in your tracks. I mean, the idea that cops could not make this guy at all uncomfortable physically when they knew he had taken this car. They knew it because they had video footage of him. He was like a 300-pound Samoan guy with a blonde afro or something. I mean, he was like the most recognizable person on earth who they had on video. And yet, if you try to have a conversation on this topic, it's over before it even starts. Yeah, I, I think I, my intuition is the same as yours, certainly in that case. I mean, this is consequentialism 101. And in fact, you know, the utilitarians like, like Bentham, uh, were actually, you know, they, they used torture as an example. And they said there should be, you know, that the logic is causing one person suffering to, to save a thousand lives is, is a rational thing to do. Uh, so, and it's, so the same moral philosophy that gives you, you know, gay marriage and, uh, and, and gives you personal freedoms of all sorts that, that liberals uh, like me like, also gives you, you know, the justification for torture. Yeah. I, I, I would say, as you're aware, there is a counter-argument, which I'm sometimes persuaded by, which is that, that in that instance, you're certainly right that torture is a good thing. But nonetheless, as a matter of policy, one should block it absolutely. Well, that, that's my, that is my argument, in fact. It's actually not original with me. I got it from um, Mark Bowden, the, the, the Atlantic writer who wrote a long article on torture, which is linked somewhere on my website. He argued, basically, that he thought it should be illegal across the board but our interrogators should know that there are certain cases, perhaps never actually reached, but certain cases which, if reached, will be ethically and psychologically obvious to them, where it would be ethical to make somebody uncomfortable by whatever means, uh, because you absolutely know that you are in one of these ticking bomb scenarios, which uh, potentially can occur. And in that case, you would still be breaking the law, but there's no judge or jury who would want to prosecute you for what you did. So you will be ethically and, in fact, off the hook, even though you will have broken the law. And that's, I think that's the right policy. I think it should be illegal across the board because of all the other consequences of having some legal mechanism by which to torture people. So I like the analogy you gave before of collateral damage, which makes a nice point. I, I taught a freshman seminar uh, a couple of years ago on the seven deadly sins. And I started at one point with the famous trolley problem, which I think we spoke about last time we yeah. talked. Uh, you know, and basically the question is, would you kill one person to save five? And one innocent person save five innocent people. And my students by and large says, yeah, it would, it, they would. And then a bit later in the conversation, I asked, would you torture somebody to save five people? And they said, no. Right. They said, they said, <laughs> And then, and then I said, but which is worse, killing somebody or torturing them? And yeah. but so, so that, that's, that's the thing. Now, here's what I'll say, which, which might shock you. I have the same intuition. I actually think that, that, that in some way, although, for, you know, at least for certain tortures, I'd rather be tortured than killed. I guess there's some torture so horrific I'd rather die, but, but getting, I'd rather be smacked around uh, than killed. Nonetheless, I think in some way, smacking around, 
or certainly that waterboarding, that the, the more serious tortures are worse than killing somebody. And 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 I need to I need to sort of nail down the intuition. It has an intuition to do with human dignity and respect. You know, somebody who kills another person, in some way, the act is less degrading than torturing another person. Though in a, in another respect, of course, it's far worse to kill than to torture. Yeah, well, I think it does have certain connections to the trolley problem. It, it does invoke that difference between flipping the switch and pushing the fat man. That's right. There's something, right. the up close and personal hands-on aspect of it. But all of those are aspects that are separable from the actual ethical case, which is to say that you, you could have modes of torture that didn't entail any of that. I mean, the example yep. I gave, which to everyone's horror in the end of faith was you could have a torture pill, which delivered the instruments of torture along with the instruments of their perfect concealment. And your experience as a torturer would be you gave the terrorist or the evil genius this pill, and he laid down for a, a nap of an hour and got up and then confessed everything because he never wanted to go through that again. I think at the end, you'd be tempted to call it a truth pill. You would not, this would all be concealed from you. And your experience was just having people come to you saying, okay, whatever you do, don't do that to me again. Now, again, I'm not arguing that we should have such a pill. I'm saying that all of these surface details are separable from the, the core case, which is, which is worse, killing someone, killing their children by accident, uh, as in the case of collateral damage, maiming children, you know, standing within 500 yards of the, the bomb you dropped, uh, orphaning them, uh, or making a person you know to be guilty and, and in possession of crucial information to save lives, uncomfortable to whatever degree is necessary to get them to talk. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you said before, which is these are deep issues, they're important issues, and they're issues that we're confronted with. I, I'm kind of annoyed at the sort of prissiness of some philosophers who refuse, who would, would argue that, you know, torture of any sort is absolutely wrong. Collateral damage of any sort is absolutely wrong. Killing is absolutely wrong. And failing to confront the fact that, that in, in the real world, when we deal with, with these, in times of war, in times of, of the criminal justice system, people have to be questioned. Uh, people have to be uh, uh, detained. And... The question of what is torture, even if one is categorically against it, you still have to confront the case of where it begins and, and where it doesn't begin. You have to. You, there's no excuse for for failing to delve into these issues. And the same with collateral damage. Someone who's who's for me hardcore pacifism isn't merely a sort of unrealistic position. It's a, basically a monstrous position. Yeah. Because yeah. because it says you should not engage in war. To, to, to under the most even even to stop the most savage brutality even if even if a relatively costless invasion could stop the Holocaust you shouldn't do it and but, to me I think that's just awful yeah well recall uh, as I did in the end of faith Gandhi's position on the Holocaust Gandhi thought that the Jews of Europe should have willingly walked into the gas chamber so as to arouse the rest of the world to the moral horror of the Nazi regime. But then you ask yourself, well, what is the rest of the world supposed to do once they're aroused when they themselves drink the Kool-Aid of Gandhian pacifism? Do they go into the gas chambers too? I mean, there's, there's absolutely no moral core to pacifism when you actually take it to its extremity. What you're committed to doing as a pacifist is simply bearing witness to the misery and death of innocence imposed by the world's sadists and thugs. 
and you are not going to dirty your hands uh, in the process. And if push comes to shove, you're going to let them kill you and your children too. How this is ever sold as the not only a moral position, but the highest possible morality. It's a total mystery to me. But yeah, again, this is one of those positions where if you don't unpack it, it can pass as an incredibly scrupulous ethical view. I mean, as you say, people, there, there is a burden to understand what is entailed on both sides of these arguments. If you're categorically against torture, if you're categorically against uh, abortion uh, or for it, you know, whatever yeah. your position is, you have to be willing to look at what that commits you to. I, uh, I was rereading this article by a really smart criminologist on violence, and he was likening violence to a cancer. And I thought that's the worst analogy ever, because cancer is something which is uh, uh, unnecessary, awful, and if you eradicated it, the world would be a better place. But violence is inevitable and important and essential for having a good and compassionate society. Uh, you need the threat of violence in order to make sure that people honor contracts, that they don't rape and steal and kill one another, that, that uh, they don't free ride on the accomplishments of other people. And, uh, you know, by, by just about any evolutionary account, the reason why we have anger and a punitive appetite is to keep people on the up and up and to keep them from, you know, from being predators upon one another. So, it, you know, I'm kind of down on empathy, but I've been persuaded by people like Jesse Prince that anger and the punitive desire is actually, it can be a tremendously good thing. If you took away an appetite for violence uh, for people, a, a desire to inflict suffering on those who do bad, I think the world would fall apart. So Paul Bloom is against empathy, but for violence. That'll be a good tweet. And now I have a subtitle for my book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I, I uh, agree with that. I think it's, it's also a fascinating area to talk about. I still want to linger for a moment on the, this topic of, I guess they are taboo, taboo. To topics of conversation. A, a taboo topic is something which taints you for even mentioning it. Yeah. I think they're hugely consequential. I, I wasn't planning to talk about torture, and, and I, every single time the topic comes up and I find myself digging the hole a little deeper, I seem to regret it. But it, there are so many topics like this now, which are like, just they're just radioactive, and many are far more consequential than torture, because that really is a kind of outlier case. But for instance, in the news now, I'm going to raise this topic, and we are not going to talk about it, because I, I truly think this is radioactive, but I just want to, okay. I'm going to raise this just to show listeners how this sort of comes up for me. The now very current topic of police brutality and racism and the inequality between the way blacks and whites have to deal with the misuses of police force. All of that is, has, I think, been appropriately shocking to people and it's no news to anyone now. This is hugely talked about in our society in the last 12 months or so, ever since the killing of Michael Brown, or actually even before that, it wasn't, it wasn't police-related violence. But uh, the Trayvon Martin case, I think, primed this discussion. And then now we've had maybe a dozen very high-profile mm -hmm. cases where cops have killed a black man in very different circumstances. Now, there's a range of circumstances here, uh, and this is what cannot be talked about. Everyone on the side of the outrage insists upon grouping all of these cases together as almost like a single datum, a single proof that white racist cops are killing black men based on their racism. 
And this is a, a fact that is so obvious as to be uh, undeniable and to attempt to parse it in any way is going to stigmatize you for the rest of your life. But I think one thing should be absolutely obvious is that these cases are very, very different. They're very different uses of violence on the parts of the cops. They're very different victims in terms of what they were actually doing in the world. Now, to my eye, we've had in 12 months really the full range of, yeah. of example where you have a case of a sadistic, stupid, poorly trained cop essentially committing a murder and he should be in pr- the cop should be in prison for the rest of his life, all the way to a totally appropriate, understandable, and conservative use of force, which resulted in the death of the criminal suspect, and everything in between, right? And so, and yet you cannot talk about this, and it's it has to be talked about because anyone who's going to group all of these together as a single problem is just not even remotely speaking honestly about what's going on in our world and about what it takes for cops to do their jobs or what kind of cops you want or what right. it, what is an appropriate use of force given the situation. We can't talk about any of these things because of how taboo it is to differentiate among these instances wherein a black man died in the presence and, and because of the actions of cops, black or white. I think that's that's a correct diagnosis, but leans a bit towards the pessimistic. I mean, Obama's Justice Department, for instance, parsed it pretty nicely with regard to Ferguson, where they said, you know, on the one hand, uh, the killing of Michael Brown was legitimate. It was it was a, justif- a justified uh, shooting by police officers, and, and there was no reason to have further charges. But at the same time, the Ferguson Police Department did have a history of systematic racism. You, yeah. you, 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 can't, you can parse it. it. It's true there's a certain dynamic where if you were to rush out on Facebook or Twitter and then say, well, this shooting of an unarmed black kid was justified, people would immediately take all sorts of implications from it, from your statement about that. Yeah. And, and there is a certain dynamic. Um, similarly, if, if one was to go on Facebook or Twitter and say that it was unjustified, it was murder, uh, you know, a, a cop you know, committing murder because he could, People draw justifications from that too. So there's there's a sort of a bizarre polarization that happens with these issues, which is you know you're forced to um, once you take a side, you're forced to categorize all instances that bear on the debate as falling into your your side of the of of, of, of the issue, um, even 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 if this is just irrational. I mean, yeah. the, the the shorter version of all this is nuance is underappreciated in certain contexts. Quite consequentially, so I just think it's it's a I'm I'm sort of arguing from an N of one here. I'm just a kind of what it's like to be me because I seem to to touch all of these controversial topics because I find them you know, one interesting, but two you know very consequential. I just think I think the the intersection between philosophically interesting phenomenon, philosophically and scientifically interesting phenomenon, and huge social consequence. That is the most interesting intersection of all, and that's where I want to spend my time. But the consequences are you wind up touching topics like violence and racism and war, and these are the the big moments in in life. However statistically rare they, they are, these are huge cases where we have to get things ethically straight. Yeah, but the personal, psychological, and social cost of dealing with these with with the blowback on these topics yeah. is understandable. It's just that it's a bandwidth problem. People don't necessarily have the time 
to fully understand what you what you said or what you meant to say or what was actually in the original article. They just see the sliming of you that is is the loudest thing out there. And so this style of arguing where you just you maliciously misrepresent someone's views or uh, encourage yeah. a misunderstanding of them. Again, I'm just I'm kind of marshalling time and attention and kind of emotional resources now and obviously doing it badly because in this conversation we've raised torture, we've raised uh, you know all of these topics. It's gun, just gun control and racial profiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Let's let's go straight there. <laughs> it's an interesting question how much of the sliming is a sort of accidental byproduct of how people's minds work and how much of it is a purposeful strategy on people on, of people on certain sides. And, and, and I think it's both. I think you can dissect that out with enough communication. You can, because I'm willing to cut a lot of slack for the way people pay attention, the way their triggers get thrown, and the fact that once you are pretty sure you don't like someone's views, you're not going to waste a lot of time trying to get absolutely clear about all the nuances that they think is on their side. I, I'm willing to discount for that. But there are cases of distortion that are just so shocking yes. and so just clearly irrational. And my experience is no matter how much you point certain people back to the text that obviously falsifies their purported interpretation of it, there's a not only an unwillingness to revisit the matter, there's just a gleeful doubling down which they know to be effective to their crowd. And yeah. it's a somewhat idiosyncratic problem. It's not not everyone's in the position of having to deal with this day in and day out. People understandably avoid falling into this position. And you know, I, I belatedly am now avoiding it in many cases just because it's just such a time sink. I, I, I think there's, I mean, the one process is the, the intentional, deliberative process of uh, sliming your enemies, uh, sliming those whose views you find repellent or even inconvenient and, and trying to shut them down. Uh, the accidental process to me is also interesting. We, we talked about some Twitter cases and John Ronson uh, has a wonderful book called uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's about yeah. people who have, largely about people who have gotten into trouble for fairly minor or sometimes not minor things for the most part or some kind, some cases serious things. Some cases for things that were meant as a joke and were just taken wrong and then had their lives effectively ruined. And, and a heuristic I've started to have is when I hear something terrible about somebody on, on Twitter, social media, whatever, I simply assume, and it's kind of almost a regression to the mean argument, which is that when you hear something terrible, the truth is going to be less terrible. And, and time and time and time again, when the details get worked out, it turns out that people didn't say this heinous thing. They didn't do this terrible thing. It's much more complicated. And um, there's a distorting fact about social media. And I think a distorting fact about human psychology, which is we like our villains. We like our villains yeah. to be appropriately villainous. And we love stories involving people doing horrific, racist, ugly things. The segues nicely into another topic that uh, was very much in the news recently of uh, Cecil the Lion and the, Cecil the, lion. The, the dentist who killed him. It has all of these features of the amplification of moral outrage based on the bug or feature of empathy, depending on how you look at it, and also this dynamic of social shaming and the, the snowball effect and the, the consequences for, in this case, the dentist, which are pretty extreme. I think he has, has now surfaced. I don't know how closely you've been following this case, but I can imagine you have a few thoughts on how 
well spent the moral outrage of seven billion people has been on on the case of Cecil the Lion. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I've actually looked it up, sort of, to prepare myself for my conversation with you, since we had talked about this a bit before. And and you know, there, there's some reason to believe he did do something wrong. It, it's not quite clear. He says he was hoodwinked by somebody else, and he thought they had proper permits. And so, you know, if he did something wrong, he broke the law, he should be punished. Uh, I, I don't have any problem with saying that that that, and and also, I don't have particularly love for big game hunting. I, I, you know, I maybe I'm betraying my own liberal background, but I find it kind of a repellent activity. Yeah. How, however, the, the, the lack of proportion on this case is astonishing. You know, I honestly think if the dentist went to Africa and shot an African, there'd be a lot less fuss. Yeah, yeah. Instead, he shot this beautiful lion and it's this, this the, the sentimentality combined with the mob attacks. Of course, his house has been attacked. There are personal threats in his life. The, the standard thing you see when a Twitter mob, you know, gets enthused about something. Um, and, you know, and particularly if you think about that, there was a, a good article by Vo on Vox, and I forget who wrote it, you know, pointing out the hypocrisy of people being so enraged at the murder of this lion. People who are by no means vegetarian and, and who, who eat animals all the time, animals who die in far more horrific ways mm. than the beautiful lion did. And, and it's just, it's, it's this lack of, of moral proportion, which I think, I think just, just saddens me. You know, I, I share your bias against big game hunting, especially against the killing of what has been called charismatic megafauna. Uh, and and this dentist seems to have been an especially enthusiastic practitioner of this kind of killing. I mean, he, I don't think there's any pretense that he was doing most of his hunting to eat what he killed. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, you know, he's killing elephants and rhino and giraffe. And I, I think there was a list of all of the, the most prized and rare animals that a hunter could legally kill if he was um, willing to pay enough and travel enough. And he claimed to have killed, you know, everything on the list but one or something, something yeah. amazing. And so the guy was spending a lot of time and money going around and for his really his whole life. I mean, this this was almost a religion for him. I think he started hunting when he was five, as as many hunters do. But he was not hunting for food. He was hunting for trophies. And yeah, I, I find myself totally unsympathetic with that attitude. I just and, and I can. I can get right up to the door of it, I, you know, because I, I shoot guns for my own reasons of you know, mm -hmm. being interested in, in self-defense and their utility there. And it, the truth is, it's incredibly fun to shoot guns. I mean, once you decide, well, I, I want to learn how to shoot a gun, it becomes a, a like a high-stakes video game that's incredibly fun to do. I mean, it's, just, it's a kind of a guilty pleasure. And so I can imagine that hunting is even more fun if you don't have any scruple about killing the animal. In fact, if you want to kill the animal, and especially if you're if you're going to eat the animal, I could imagine traipsing around in the woods with a real purpose and stalking an animal and killing it. I can imagine that's incredibly fun for those people who do it. I have absolutely no interest in doing it because I don't feel like killing animals. But I, I'm under no illusions that my position as a non-vegetarian, as someone who eats meat and therefore delegates the killing of animals to others, I'm under no illusions that that is a, an ethically more defensible position than the position of a hunter who eats what he kills. And I think, I think the hunter is in a far stronger position than I am. He is owning the full process by which he is 
arriving at his hamburger or, uh, you know, in this case, venison steak yeah. or whatever it is. So I, I really have nothing negative to say about, about a hunter in the generic case, except that I am too squeamish to do it. They don't want to do it. This is something that I've also gotten an incredible amount of hate mail for. I, I'm someone who really has no strong ethical defense of eating meat, except for the fact that when I was a vegetarian, I managed not to do it intelligently enough and became anemic and was someone who, whose health clearly improved once he started eating meat again. And in the present case, you know, the, sort of the, the science experiment of raising two vegetarian kids, much less vegan kids, is, is not something that, that I'm eager to perform. So I'm somewhat attached to eating meat for reasons of health and pleasure, frankly. Yeah. And I haven't examined the case closely enough to find it morally as abhorrent as it no doubt is so as to be motivated to make all of the sacrifices I would have to make to stop eating meat and to figure I'm, out how I'm, to raise my kids healthily. I'm even worse than that, in which I have examined the case, and I find the argument against eating meat, particularly uh, factory-raised meat, uh, you know, there, there's some exceptions, but eating the sort of meat one gets in supermarkets and restaurants is morally tremendously persuasive, and I am persuaded. Nonetheless, yeah. I continue to eat meat. I, it, it tastes good. I don't have the discipline to stop. There's, there's certain, you know, physical health benefits and so on. And I'm under no pretense that I'm I'm being a good person. I know I'm being a very bad person in this domain. Well, let, let's I, let's go back. Let's plant a flag there because I think that ethically is incredibly interesting. As two people who are ostensibly committed to the triumph of reason and following it to its ethical consequences and and being motivated by the result, I think that this is a prime case of philosophical uh, hypocrisy. Yep. Uh, we should come back to it, but I, I just want to: yeah. Is there anything? more to be said about the fate of this dentist, kind of the mismatch between the consequences of his actions and the repercussions. I don't think there's much more to be said. I think it's just a nice illustration of a point which we actually talked about with regard to torture, which is on the one hand, there's a sort of what matters? The, 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 what matters? What, what counts as a worse crime than what? What should one be allowed to do? And one can sort of as a reflective person rank things and say, it's worse to kill somebody than to beat them. It's worse to steal a hundred dollars than one dollar. Um, it's worse to kill a, a, an African human than, human than an African lion. And and then there's the second story to be told, which is our intuitions. And our and our intuitions, our unreflective intuitions, go in all sorts of crazy and interesting directions. And it's kind of what my day job is: trying to figure out how, why it is we're constituted to take the death of the lion so much more seriously than, in some cases, the death of a person. Why we're constituted to treat torture and rape, for instance, as, as particularly horrific crimes, and yet to be indifferent to collateral damage. Mm. And, and I think that the, so much of, of, I think, what it is, both as a feel of scholarship, but also to be a good person, is trying to sort of say, well, I feel this way. These are my intuitions. But I have to reflect on it and analyze it and maybe I have to live my life different from my gut feelings. Maybe I have to, you know, maybe I have to acknowledge that in some cases, this which appears to be right is wrong and vice versa. And, and I think uh, if somebody wanted to start, I would say, if you feel that the murder of Cecil Lyon is the biggest news story of 2015, you really got to reassess your moral values. There's one case here where I feel like my own intuitions are either misfiring or they're 
at least they require some justification. It's another case I, I want to raise, which I, I mentioned to you uh, before this call, but I don't, I don't want our listeners to um, fear that we are dodging the, the, the vegetarian topic. So we, we're going to get back to it because it's a topic of huge interest among uh, my listeners. But there was this case in the news of the oncologist Fareed Fatah, who gave over 500 patients chemotherapy and radiation who, who didn't need it. And some of them had cancer and were, were terminal, and this, this treatment was unwarranted because they were clearly terminal, and he was just extending their, their misery but not their lives. But some didn't even have cancer, and he, he lied to them, telling them that they did and that they would soon die without treatment. And they went, these people went through full courses of chemo and radiation and had their health destroyed by this process. And he did this to, to hundreds of people over the and, course. And he did, this, he did this for the money? It seems that he did this entirely for the money. And, and it was being prosecuted not as a murder. I mean, that many of his patients died, but some of them were going to die anyway because they had cancer. Some had their health destroyed from the, the treatment that they didn't need and survived. But it seems to be prosecuted as a one of the biggest Medicare frauds ever, and he, he got 45 years in prison. Uh, one wonders why he didn't get life in prison. But yeah, to call him to call him Medicare fraud seems to be missing the point. Yeah, but I, I guess they they had some problem proving just w what the consequences were of the treatments in every case. But I find this so disturbing, and this is this is where I think my intuitions are at least interesting, if not awry. I, I find it more disturbing than cases of the clearest evil, you know, where you have someone, you have a serial killer who just hates people or gets sadistic pleasure out of their suffering, and he goes around, you know, torturing and murdering kids, you know, the, the, the prototypically evil person. I feel like I understand that more. And I, under, I certainly understand the case of someone like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS at the moment, the, mm -hmm. the guy, someone who he's killing thousands of people, he's keeping sex slaves, he's a monster. But I believe that he has an internal justification for his actions, which makes sense to him. I can well imagine, in fact, I'm, I'm reasonably sure that he thinks he's just impeccable ethically and he's justified in doing everything he does. I have no doubt he's wrong about that, but his psychology isn't totally alien to me. But here we have a guy who became a doctor. He trained at Sloan Kettering, one of the best cancer centers in, in the world. And obviously, he took his Hippocratic Oath. Presumably, he did not become a doctor just so that he could be in a position to make people miserable in this way. But he then, for years, goes through this diabolical, grotesque pantomime of medical care, where he is, in a very real sense, running a torture chamber for patients who... I mean, just imagine the details here. He has to pretend to be their doctor. He has to console them. He has to give them ancillary medication to deal with their pain and their sleeplessness. He has to hear about their stories of, of going into bankruptcy so as to pay for this medical treatment, which is what was the case in many cases, where he, he was urging his patients, patients he knew were going to die, he was urging them to stay on, the, on this expensive treatment to the end. Meanwhile, they were, you know, selling their homes and going into bankruptcy. And I mean, he was spectating on all of this. And just think of the, the amount of time and attention it took on his part to do this. And all of this was just so he could make more money from his billings of expensive medicine. It's just, I guess this is, is 
in some sense, falling into the banality of evil case. But this way of being in the world is so foreign to me that I find it more disturbing. And I I just wonder if you echo any of that uh, reaction. so it's not a puzzle why why you and why me find this guy to be absolutely horrible. This is it's the least controversial thing we'll we'll be saying on this podcast. Yeah. But um but but it's interesting that you find him sort of uniquely horrible. And I can think of two things going on here. One is that you're right that he doesn't fall into sort of established paradigms. So he's not some sort of fanatic uh like Hitler or like the head of ISIS who sincerely believes that what he's doing is right would you know would be thinks that people who disagree with him are wrong, thinks he's on the side of the angels. I, I'd be very surprised if he believes that. Nor is he mentally ill, nor is he a, a Jeffrey Dahmer or a son of Sam who has these irresistible urges or these schizophrenic illusions. He seems to be somebody just like you and me who has chosen to do something bad simply to make money. And, and it seems just monstrous and, and, and hard to excuse in any way. I'll, I'll point out something else, which is, there's a nice little literature in the cognitive psychology domain on heuristics and biases and sort of biases that drive us, our intuitions in sometimes unexpected ways. And one thing that Cass Sunstein once spoke about, and there's not a, there haven't been many experiments on this, is what he calls a betrayal bias. So mm. the idea is that in a personal realm, we get really upset when we're betrayed by somebody. And that's in some way kind of obvious. I mean, be, being betrayed is bad. But Sunstein points out that this has all sorts of weird consequences. So one consequence I remember is um, people hate the idea of being killed by their airbag. Mm. So, so <laughs> much so that when you, when you do these studies where you ask them how much money would you pay to, to, be, to be you know reassured you won't be killed by something, people will pay far more to avoid being killed by their airbag than, say, to avoid being killed by their steering wheel. Uh, that's because awesome. The, because the airbag is to keep them safe. So yeah. how ironic. It's, uh, you know, you, you, you know, nobody wants to die ironically. <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. And, and, um, and, and I, I, I think the feeling of betrayal, this is a doctor who kills his patients, is particularly repellent. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think stories of, of sexual abuse by priests have a similar flavor to them. And, and it's why they're so terrible. Um, the idea of putting your trust in somebody and then having somebody take advantage of it is a, partic- is a particularly special evil that you don't see in these other evil cases you, you imagine. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, son of Sam, the head of ISIS, they do all sorts of horrible things, but they didn't really betray anybody's trust. Yeah, I think I, that, that does dissect it out, I think, rather neatly. I think it's because when I look at the details that captivate me ethically here, the fact that he had to actually spend time with patients and their families and deal with their grief and make his recommendations, the fact that these conversations had to happen with an empathic look on his face, right? Hour after hour after hour, that's all falling into this bin of just a shocking betrayal of trust. I'd want to know his story. I want to, I mean, not not to excuse it. It sounds pretty unexcusable. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't think there's a story to be told which is going to have him coming off as an innocent guy. But but I think there's going to be some story. It's not going to be oh, I willingly decided to do evil, uh, you know, in order to make money. In his sentencing, he did again. You don't entirely know what you're getting from somebody at a sentencing hearing, but apparently he did burst into tears and issue some mea culpa where he just said he did something horrible and he should never have done this and his 
it's against everything he is as a person. So it's not that he was saying these are honest mistakes and, you know, I really thought they had cancer and I just, you know, yeah. I don't know how to read a CAT scan. He was he was admitting that his greed got the better of him, uh, at least as far as what I read. And uh, I, I, it would be interesting to know if there's anything that makes this more complicated, but it, I don't really see a space for the, the necessary piece to change the moral shape of what he did. Me neither, though. If I had to guess, I would imagine it's probably a slippery slope case where you start doing something a little bit bad, you get away with it, and then you just move on to the next and the next and the next. And each one is a small step. I mean, this shows up for academic fraud. You know, you, you cut corners in some way that people say, well, that's okay, or nobody's sure of it. And then if you allow yourself to do that before you know it, you're making up your data. Um, you know, it, it's in cases of, uh, of abuse, you know, someone gets shoved, and it's all okay, and it works out fine. So next time you don't shove them, you slap them, and then it keeps going up like that. And it might be that he cut corners, maybe there's a hard case, chemo or no chemo, and he decided, yeah. Chemo, you know, make some money, but it's, it's probably the right answer. And then the next time, it wasn't such a hard case. And he said, oh, I'll lean towards chemo again. Yeah, but that, now this is chemo for everybody, though. This is chemo for <laughs> chemo people for who, who don't, don't have cancer. <laughs> chemo for everybody. Um, I wonder if psychologically it was just for him each the, – the act, the horrible acts he ended up doing were the product of a series of very, very small steps, each one which seemed, you know, a minor deviation from the last – so, but, you know, but still, but then the question is, why don't we all end up like that? We don't end up like that. So there has to be something more to the story. Yeah. I, the prompt, the moral slippery slope thing is that explains too much. Um, we all cut corners sometimes, but we don't end up, you know, killing people or faking our data and so on. Right. Oh, yeah, the other thing is he, he faked an article. He claimed that his, um, I mean, the details are, are horrible. Uh, this is quoting from the Newsweek article. Fatah bamboozled patients into receiving additional doses of the immunosuppressive drug rituximab, even after they were successfully treated for their lymphoma, in some instances for as long as three years. By the time Fatah was arrested, their immune systems had been permanently devastated. Others were left with decaying jaws and never-ending bouts of intense pain from the bone cancer-fighting drug Zomita. He deflected suspicion from the rituximab patients and medical staff by claiming that it was part of a revolutionary European or French protocol even going so far as to forge a medical paper after his arrest that supposedly proved the value of rituximab. Elsewhere, elsewhere, he kept a tight leash on information by denying patients access to their full medical records, preventing them from being able to effectively seek a second opinion. He overdosed patients so he could use the entire containers of medication he had billed for, harangued the dying into staying at the hospice where he received a kickback, pressured others into using services for businesses he owned, Again, these are people who are declaring that they're now going into bankruptcy and selling their homes, etc. I understand slippery slopes where you're willing to run some risk of harm, but yeah. it's still just hypothetical. It's like what you have a car company that is cutting costs on its brake cables or whatever because they're more or less willing to take a bet that nothing too terrible is going to happen and if terrible things do happen, if if a hundred people die as opposed to seventy five people dying as yep. a result of this, well, then they can price in those twenty five lives in some global sense. And none of this has really happened. It may never happen. So you know, let's let's roll the dice. I mean, here we have the, just the categorical difference of people with cancer and people without cancer, and he's willing to give people unnecessary chemo and radiation and and ruin their lives.
they're bright lines in certain cases right. and, and not in others. So, so, here's, so here's the question, which is, you know, the way you frame it, it's hard to think of as good an example as sort of pure evil as that. It, 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 it's evil with, with not, you know, with no excuses. But, the pro- so, but this, is, this is the problem for me is that it, it seems not to be an example of pure evil. It seems to be an example of pure greed and just a disregard for the consequences of your actions in the service of greed. I don't think this is, I'm, you know, I'm now sort of playing mind reader here, but based on what I've seen, I don't think this is a person who was a, a psychopath who was going through his life harming people as a matter of course. I don't think he's, right. I mean, you might say he has to be somewhat a psychopath in order to be capable of this, but he's not a quintessentially bad actor who you know, was beating people up in high school and now he's just kind of graduated to more high-tech crime. I think he's just a doctor who happened to be very greedy. Yeah, I, I, I would include that under the rubric of pure evil, but I, I appreciate the distinction because what he's not, as you describe him, is he's not somebody who enjoys people suffering for its own sake. Right. He's not a, he's not a sadist. I mean, and say, it's actually interesting how rare sadism is. You know, there, there's this big book of psychological disorders, the DSM, and then the most recent one where they list every possible disorder, they don't even list sadism. Well, they don't even list psychopathy now. No? I mean, that was a controversial editorial decision that... They well, we could talk to... about this, but the, the science of psychopathy is, is, is incredibly uncertain. The idea that there's a certain sort of individual, a psychopath with his own brain and his own special qualities, seems largely to be an urban legend. I mean, it could be that what we've been talking about psychopaths are just bad people who have a cluster of bad traits, but there's not much more to say about them. There's clearly a phenomenon which is whatever you want to call it, and perhaps there are several roots there. Maybe there are many different ways in which you can be damaged as a person so as to happily behave this way. But there's there's clearly the case of someone who reliably harms other people because of his degree of selfishness and callousness uh, and perhaps the added feature of actually taking pleasure in their suffering. Yeah. Um, So, so nobody would deny that, that people vary in their traits. And I, you know, some, one analysis of psychopathy talks about, I think this is right. Boldness, disinhibition, and meanness, meanness being a cluster of just not caring, but other Mm. people maybe wanting to see him suffer, maybe enjoying dominating about them. But it might be that people just vary along these three traits. And if you have a lot, you know, if, if you have a lo- not much inhibition, you're very bold and you're very mean, well, we'll call you a psychopath. But there's not much more to that than being on, you know, high on a certain continuum. Hmm. It's not like being a diabetic or, or a hemophiliac. It's not a special disorder. It's not even like being a schizophrenic. It's more like being a jerk. It's been a few years since I've looked at this literature, though, but there has been some neuroimaging work done on people who score high on Hare's psychopathy inventory, and that seems to have panned out in, in, in terms of seeing a very high correlation between lack of gray matter density in the frontal lobes and, quote, psychopathy. I think some of that's true. I, I think what, what, what's really going on, and you could see, imagine I have a vested interest in this, is mm-hmm. with psychopath, it turns out that the empathy and, and emotional aspects of being a psychopath that are captured by Hare's scale don't predict much of anything. But, um, but things like lack of inhibition yeah. are tremendously predictive of bad behavior. So it wouldn't surprise me that there'd be neural signatures associated with it. 
Right. Um, I just wanted to go back to, back to our doctor. Um, one really interesting question. I mean, you and I are both determinists of a sort. Maybe you stronger than me. And so there has to be some sort of reason why he embarked on this path. And it seems to be a really interesting question whether you could see these traits, you know, in his adolescence or his childhood. It, somehow, it's just his personality was just is just bizarre in a certain way, or whether something happened to him. Um, you know, it's 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 an interesting question about human nature: is to what extent is, particularly for bad behavior, is this something that was always part of our natures or imposed upon us by some circumstance? What? I sometimes think the television show Breaking Bad was a long one of my favorite shows. Was a long exploration of exactly that topic. Yeah, well, on some level, impulse control covers a, a lot of this. Like, I, I can view this doctor as someone who is a kind of addict. I mean, he's he's addicted to this, the fruits of this scheme of defrauding Medicare, and he just just wants as much money as he can possibly get this way. And he's he has no scruple is large enough so as to uh, impede his activity. I mean, this, this almost covers everything from sending out an ill-considered tweet to reaping your next victim as a sadistic killer, an inability to pull the brakes. I guess it's possible you know, that you, you simply have no scruples at all, and therefore there'd be no reason right. to pull the brakes. But insofar as you have any misgivings or any dual commitments, uh, an inability to, to slow down it produces all of these pathologies. I could see that at a certain level, but there does seem to be an important difference in scale. So there's one sort of lack of impulse control where, you know, you get angry and you smack your kid. You feel, you know, in a certain mood, you send out an embarrassing tweet. And, and that's, you know, that you, you know, if you drink a lot of alcohol, that also diminishes impulse control mm -hmm. in an obvious way. Then there's sort of another level, which is that you know something is, is bad and you do it anyway. And in some sense, you could view that as a lack of impulse control. But the way you describe the doctor is it was deliberative and planned and extended. So to put it another way, I wouldn't imagine if you looked at his brain, you would find his frontal lobes are diminished. I think he has the capacity for impulse control in a local sense, but maybe not in a sort of broader sense you're talking about. Well, all of this segues rather nicely into our own yes. moral horror of um, <laughs> continuing to eat meat, uh, despite the fact that we are convinced ethically by the arguments against it. I mean, we have failures of impulse control. We have a long-running commitment to dietary practices that we find indefensible. Uh, in fact, we may be indistinguishable from this doctor in terms of the, um, the clarity with which we have ambled into evil. I think future generations will view us as analogous to slave owners. Well, that's, uh, you sounded like you said that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think that no. you, you, we might actually fear that prospect. Were you joking, or, or you, you actually no, think no, that's probably... No, yeah. no, I'm, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy exercise to imagine what 100 years from now and what we do now will be seen as monstrous. This I think has to be high the on... The treatment of non-human animals is obvious. I think our indifference to the suffering of the very poor uh, is another example. I can think of some other more controversial cases. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do think, you know, it, it's... It, it is such, so many people eat meat, Everyone, just about everybody I know, that it's easy to make light of. But, but we're complicit in, in the horrific suffering of many, many creatures. This, this may be that, you know, our, our mutual friend Steve Pinker wrote a book on human moral progress. And I think 99% of the book is correct. But I think that 
if you look at the numbers, we may be causing more suffering to non-humans than ever before because we're breeding them for yeah. their for their. All right. Well, let's take the ethics of meat eating more or less from the top. So you and I both agree that we are participating in a system that is, on some basic level, ethically indefensible. That factory farming is just a horror show. We both know that if we had to work in an abattoir, we would never stomach it. We would never do it. I know that I'm not going to go out and kill a cow to get my next hamburger, and I certainly wouldn't immiserate one for every moment of its life on the way to the killing floor to get my next hamburger. So, And yet the fact that I participate in a system that does this uh, knowingly more or less condemns me as a total hypocrite. That's kind of the basic uh, situation. Is there, are there any other moving parts there you, you, you want to add? I think ethically this isn't a very hard case. I've heard defenses of meat-eating and there's some of the worst arguments I've ever heard in my life. Uh, animals don't feel pain. Humans have a right to do whatever they want. It's natural. Uh, you know, it, arguments which wouldn't be taken seriously in any other domain. Arguments that are just born out of guilt and bad faith. So I think it's it, it's clear enough that that what we do to animals is wrong. Um, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, we could ask ourselves talking about the doctor in other cases, what's it like to knowingly do evil? And I think this is what it feels like. We, we know what it's like to knowingly do evil. All, all I'll, I'll sort of nibble at around the edges is, it's not really hypocrisy, I think. I think it's, it's a nicer term for this, uh, you know, this word acrasia. It's weakness yeah. of will. You know, we, we know the right thing to do. We're not shy about saying what the right thing to do is. We just can't do it. Well, the question is, so let's, let's just expand the picture a little bit. One question is, so ha what would be the best way to change this? Because uh, you know, I'm someone who's supportive of natural, grass-fed, more ethically sustainable uh, ways of raising animals insofar as it's easy to do that. I don't make crazy sacrifices to, so as to only get meat or chicken or, or eggs or milk that has come by the most ethical sources. But uh, which is to say, you know, I'll go to a restaurant and I will eat like a non-vegetarian and not uh, interrogate them about where they get all their, their meat. But it seems pretty clear that the system could be improved significantly and make it far less horrible. They, it could be uh, these animals could have much better lives than they do. And that would be a good thing. And that demand for that kind of meat would probably be more effective than some percentage of people defecting as vegans or vegetarians. Obviously, this is a, a totally tendentious and self-serving meat-eater sort of argument, except it might also have the virtue of being true. Well, before we totally close the door to it, well, just take a peek across that threshold. Is there any merit in saying that one could more effectively help farm animals by being a conscientious consumer of meat. I guess this is, this is almost like the trophy hunters saying that they are, in fact, conservationists by going to Africa and killing some number of lions and paying for the privilege. They are, in fact, the best conservationists. There, there may be some merit to that argument, too. Kindly uh, either support or disabuse me of all that. No, I, I'm actually on the same page on this. I mean, and, and we have sort of a Peter Singer, who's, who's of course, very powerfully uh, supported vegetarian movements and very much protests against the suffering of animals. 
has at different times been sort of, you know, thoughtful on the issue of humanely raised animals. His point and my point, which I agree with, is that the badness of the act isn't necessarily killing animals to eat them. You know, it's not clear whether that's a bad thing, particularly if the animals didn't exist prior to, to your intervention. The thing is that before we blow past that, I agree, though, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do it. In fact, I, I know I wouldn't do it, or, and I wouldn't like myself if I became so callous as to be happy to do it. You know, if I just got got into the hang of it, you know, killing cows horrified me initially, but once I killed a hundred of them, you know, I just didn't really care because, I, oh, damn, I love a good hamburger. So that's, I don't, I don't want to be really that person. Interesting. That's sort of a Kantian view. So Kant, I, at one point, this is probably a misinterpretation, but said, look, you know, animals don't matter in their own right, but you don't want to make them suffer because it will corrode your feelings towards humans. It'll make you into a worse person. And it's interesting. I also would find it hard to kill animals uh, just because, you know, I would have a natural repugnance towards doing it. But I, I don't. I don't take that view. I don't. I certainly don't take the Kantian view that they don't matter in their own right. I think they. Right. They, they. They certainly matter in their own right to the degree that they can suffer, or or be deprived of happiness, or to the degree that they're conscious. So, for instance, if we could raise anencephalic animals, so 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 brainless cows who have, by definition, no experience, but they're just basically. Synthetic biology is the ultimate yeah. case of this. I mean, or, or synthetic meat is the ultimate case Gro of this. Growing meat in a test tube. Yeah, growing meat in a test tube. There's obviously no ethical problem with that. Um, so I'll plant my flag on a couple of things. First thing, you know, there may be problems with humane, killing humanely raised animals, but that's a hard case. And um, and I think it would be such a step up to move to, to humanely raised animals to what we have now. It would cost more. And, and there's issues, there's sort of a classist issue about encouraging people to do this. But I think that would be such a moral step because I think what goes wrong in what we're doing now isn't killing the animals, it's causing the suffering, causing the pain. But, um, don't, but don't you think, so mm -hmm. I, I don't want to let us off the hook too quickly there because each one of these stations you blow past makes it that much more likely that you're going to get to your Thanksgiving dinner with a, a full mm -hmm. spread and uh, a turkey uh, harvested one way or the other. My first ethical concern is, I mean, forget about the details of how horrible it is for the animals and what changes we might make there. If you know that you would find it ethically repugnant to kill an animal uh, and to kill animals day after day so as to secure your protein, just you wouldn't want to live this way. You'd much rather pet a cow than kill it with a stun gun or by any other method. If you know you're that kind of person and you wouldn't want to be any other kind of person, doesn't it seem just transparently unethical to be willing to delegate that process to others and just keep it you know, out of sight, out of mind, and go on eating meat, however raised? If you find it morally repellent to kill animals, yes. If you find it morally repellent to kill animals, if you were the killer, then you shouldn't be uh, demanding other people do it for your sake. On the other hand, if you just find it repellent or, or unpleasant, that's kind of different. Mm -hmm. I might be pro-choice, but not have the stomach to do abortions. Right. I, I, I may not have the temperament to be a prison guard, but that doesn't mean that to be consistent, I have to be against prisons. Right. So on the other hand, if I said to be a prison guard would be morally repellent, then I should be against prisons. I, I sh if, if it's morally repellent, that implies there's a better alternative, and, and I should be. So... so 
depends on my re, if you believe that killing the cows, those humane cows, is wrong for you to do it yourself, then that really does raise an issue with with your belief about uh, eating meat in general. On the other hand, if you just didn't have the stomach for it, that's kind of a different case. I don't think that should stop you from eating meat. Right. Yeah. Well, I think I come down on the side of it being wrong if what complicates it for me is I mean there's there's the pleasure uh, to which I'm I think marginally attached. I mean I, I like eating meat certainly some of the time. I'm a little squeamish about it at other times, but I, I just I also just have this feeling that we don't understand human health and nutrition enough, the fact that there's, there's any controversy at all about what human beings should eat so as to be healthy, I find to be an incredible scientific embarrassment. The fact that you can have debates about carbs and protein and fat consummated in good faith by experts, and there's still some uncertainty here is an amazing state of our current situation in science. But my concern is that there is enough uncertainty, and my brief experience of six years as a vegetarian convinced me that it's hard enough to be sure you're getting everything you need, or at least it, it was then, that I'm leery of doing it for health reasons. And when I think about raising kids as vegetarians, and especially as vegans, then that just begins to look like a poorly controlled science experiment. I mean, I see people who are ra raising vegan kids, and now I'm going to hear from them, you know, they're going to be outraged that I have any doubt whatsoever that you could raise healthy vegan kids. But you're going to get an email from my sister. But I have significant doubts on that score, and there's certainly no biological or evolutionary guarantee that this is an easy or straightforward thing to do. And when you know you have to supplement B12, and who knows what else you really should be supplementing so as to get things right. And so part of this is just laziness, not wanting to have what I eat and what I feed my kids become such a life-consuming project as a vegetarian or vegan, where I have to be absolutely sure that I have all the dials tweaked appropriately. It's just easier to eat meat sometimes and fish sometimes and be reasonably sure that I'm getting everything that a human needs to get. But that laziness, given the magnitude of the suffering we're imposing on non-human animals, that laziness is a horrible thing about me. That laziness is not justifiable if you actually look closely at the details. There's also a middle ground. I mean, we don't want to be in a position of saying, well, I couldn't live if I gave 80% of my money to charity, therefore I'll give nothing. And, and to some extent, you know, would, would, you know, I share your concerns about living a, a vegan or even a vegetarian lifestyle. But I think then, plainly, if you restrict yourself to ethically raised animals, Plainly, that's much, much better. Mm. And there, 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 there's no health concerns. Plainly, you know, you, people could live just fine off of chickens who didn't suffer as opposed to those who did. Um, but the question then is to how to sort of mandate such shifts, either a radical shift to making everybody vegetarian or vegan or a more moderate shift of, of you know, making people eat animals that, that didn't suffer as much. And I think there, there's an interesting difference between first order and second order prohibitions. And, um, and, and, and theirs actually speaks to some broader political issues. So it, it occurs to me talking about this with you that I would be very reluctant to try to commit to only eating ethically raised animals. It would be very hard and, mm. and inconvenient. I'd have to embarrass myself at restaurants. I'd have to be that guy. And I don't want to be that guy questioning the waiter and having other people roll their eyes. And, you know, I accept that, that that's an awful excuse for participating in the suffering of animals. But there it is. However, 
I would be in favor of legislation yes. that that restrict that said you have to have all your animals ethically uh, raised. Oh, just, absolutely. Just, yeah. just by by analogy, I I don't think I have it within me to donate a huge amount of my money to help the suffering poor, but I'd be in favor of taxes that that took my money and redistributed it in such a way. And so the the first order versus second order contrast is very different. I think. I think we're in favor of policies because it takes us out of our hands because we know we're not unique. We know we're not the one sort of sucker uh, opting out while everyone else gets to eat the meat or keep the money. And, um, and, and it sort of speaks to the limit of individual free choice and why sometimes we'd want to choose to be constrained in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's a point that has arisen on other topics for me, just the... the the utility uh, and just the fundamental difference of a a systemic change as opposed to having to wake up every morning and rely on your own heroism and commitment to some sort of internal discipline. I think the biggest changes for us morally, just across the board as a species and as a civilization, will come at the second order level. It can't be that we just get every person to fully optimize his or her ethical code so as to be impeccable. We need legal and institutional changes which enshrine our, our better judgment there. So I, th- I think that's true. But we can, obviously we can't keep killing and immiserating animals with a clear conscience until some benevolent despot passes that law for us. We can't abdicate personal responsibility here. No, we can't. I, I think every person, th- this isn't what I want to say, it's not meant as an excuse, but every person living, every person listening to this now, probably from the affluent West, has to live with a significant burden of guilt for all the things that they're doing and all the things that they're not doing and all the things. And, and if you don't live with that burden of guilt, you're either a saint or you're a moral ignoramus. You're either a saint because you're doing all the right things, or you're somebody who's morally blind to the harms you're causing and the good things that you should be doing and you're not. This is a a dangerous conversation to have had because we're going to hear from some deeply unsatisfied people, unsatisfied about our ignorance of just how easy it is to live a happy, healthy life as a parent uh, feeding nothing but vegetables and a few well-targeted pharmaceuticals to your kids. Uh, and just the flabbiness of our commitment to um, our own ethical insights. Then again, maybe people didn't start off thinking we were particularly good people anyway. <laughs> that might be the case. We, yeah, we, maybe I'm burdening us with too much self-flattery here. Yeah. But I, I so just to make something truly constructive of this, I want to keep the conversation open. I'm inviting the vegetarians and vegans among our listeners to send me the best resources they have. So understand that I am convinced of the moral case. And the question is how to idiot-proof vegetarianism and or veganism. This is, this is another wrinkle we're walking into here because vegans, I think, will say, some vegans will say that merely being a vegetarian, which is to say being willing to eat eggs and, and dairy products, that is not an ethical place to stop on this slippery slope. In fact, hen-laying chickens and milk-producing cows suffer as much as any animal. Uh, is that something that you understand to be true, or is it, or, or do you think that vegetarianism is a fully defensible ethical position? It's a case-by-case thing. I think that, that the, the vegans are right about eggs, and that, uh, that, that, that there's all the eggs and milk and all the problems revolving around that. 
I think some forms, some certain types of shellfish, uh, there isn't a moral issue because they don't have, they're probably not sentient. All I would say is that right now we've confessed to living terrible lives. We can, if they could, people could persuade us to live somewhat less terrible lives, that would be a sense of moral progress. I'm not satisfied with the mere confession because I think it's, I mean, just, just step back from being ourselves for, for a moment and just look over our shoulders at what we've just confessed. We are two people who have admitted to participating in a system that is not only in some sense objectively bad, but perhaps so bad as to be the kind of thing that will be on the short list of embarrassments to our descendants. So you look back at the excesses of the Middle Ages and you think, how on earth could those people have behaved that way? I mean, they're burning witches alive. Witches didn't even exist, but you know, they're burning their neighbors alive for imaginary crimes. I mean, what the hell was going on? And we're both conceding that that the way we raise and treat and consume animals year after year is probably a moral scandal of that order or, or, or analogous mm-hmm. to slavery. And yet we are to some degree blithely participating in it and not really signaling much of a willingness to change. So I be, let me perhaps uh, throw you to the wolves here. Also, I'm going I'm <laughs> to signal my own <laughs> willingness to change. Uh, so get ready. You know now your reputation's destroyed. I, I don't. I don't know why I had this guy on my podcast. <laughs> moral monsters. You're never going to get another guest for your podcast. Moral monsters like you just don't belong on my podcast, Paul. But um, I'm appealing to my uh, listeners, vegan slash vegetarian, to um, send me some streamlined information on how to idiot-proof this process. And the clearest argument that you can do this without obvious uh, deficits in your health. And uh, I'm signaling my willingness to explore this, whether this is going to be my posting my pre and post blood work to my blog. Uh, I don't know, but I'm going to investigate further. But I, I, the parenting responsibility does change it for me a little. Experimenting on myself on the order of a decade seems different than you know having a 19-month-old who I have to figure out whether or not she should eat chicken. In any case, I'm, I'm uh, to make something constructive out of this rather than just uh, reap the whirlwind. Uh, I want the conversation to continue. Send me good information, and I will uh, post it to uh, my blog. Well, fine, Sam. You seem to be out moral signaling me here. (laughs) I would also like to add that I would be highly receptive to any instructions that uh, people have about living a more moral life with regard to eating of animals. Please send them to Sam, (laughs) and and Sam will keep me appraised on, on... uh, what he hears, I will tell you for total certainty. I am not going to post my fucking blood work on any blog. Why not? Well, you're you're, you're my, sheepish my, about your cholesterol. My blood work is my is my blood work. In the age of social media and internet, some things are sacred. Right. No, I think no. It would be an interesting experiment to run. I'm sure you know many people have done this, but to see uh, just how things change over the course of I don't know three months or so. I mean, I'm just you know I, I certainly did become anemic last time around, and, and no doubt 20 people will tell me how I was an idiot and how I could have easily supplemented my way out of that problem. In any case, I'm, I'm willing to experiment with this. And um, did, do you know if Singer or anyone has spent time on how to uh, engineer the, kind of the, the second order changes that would really be helpful, if, if not creating a vegan earth? 
creating one that won't be an embarrassment to our descendants? It, it's not a literature I've studied. I know Singer has weighed in on the benefits of uh, laboratory-raised meat mm. and other alternatives like that. Um, you know, he's, there, there are some vegans, I think there's an irrational uh, school of vegans who would object even to, to laboratory-raised meat. But I, I can't capture the, the, the moral arguments for but, that, and I won't try. But strangely, they, they seem to want their tofu to be shaped like meat and look like meat yes. and taste like meat and be called... Tofurky. Uh, um, I, I, I think that the best progress will be made by using the tools we've had with some success for other uh, cultural and social changes, like uh, uh, you know people quitting smoking are putting their money into retirement savings and so on. Um, I think some of the techniques that the nudge people are on about... Uh, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler and others uh, might have some success in this domain. And, and I think in the end, legislation would do a world of good. Sometimes we need a Leviathan to help us be better people. But having said that, I know it's a cop-out for me to say, you know, stop me before I kill again. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I won't necessarily wait myself for legislation before becoming a morally better person. Pass a law before I kill again. That's even worse. Yeah, that's right. Well, listen, Paul, it's been great, uh, as always, to talk to you. And I hope we uh, keep doing this periodically because you're somebody who's voice on on really every topic related to human nature i i always appreciate so um please keep doing what you're doing and i and i hope to have you um back on um time permitting it's a uh, it, it's mutual sam it's a delight talking with you and maybe we can make a regular habit of discussing the moral and social issues of the day and uh enraging and entrancing people to listen to us yeah unless we destroyed both of our careers over the course of the last hour and a half it is this may be actually our last <laughs> communication to the public <laughs> To remind people where they can find you online, both your, your website and your um, your social media account? Uh, my website, you just Google me. I, I haven't updated in a while. Uh, but my social media is uh, Twitter, Paul Bloom at Yale. Great, great. Okay, Paul, until next time, be well. Thanks a lot, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.